Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everyone, Baseball America Facebook Live and Podcast brought to you by Baseballism. J.J. Cooper joined by Hudson Blinsky, Carlos Colazzo, and... As you might imagine, we're talking draft because it is draft day. Actually, the first of three draft days, but it is draft day on TV, on MLB Network. It is the day that Hudson basically, and to extent Carlos, and to some extent me, and John, and pretty much everyone, yeah, has spent uh, a year building up to. Um, and uh, he's, you'll see, Hudson's going to keep uh, mainlining the caffeine throughout the yeah, entire. Facebook Live here because it's that kind of this that time of year. Do want to remind you, we thank you for tuning in to today's Baseball America podcast and Facebook Live. Our podcast and Facebook Live broadcast are sponsored by Baseballism, as you see. That's there. Uh, Baseballism is the official off the field field off the field brand of baseball, offering apparel for men, women, and kids looking for that perfect Father's Day gift. Father's Day this Sunday or maybe something special for that recent graduate, visit Baseballism.com and enter the code BA2017 and get free shipping on your next order. So we're going to take your draft questions. Feel free to put them into the comments here. But as we start this, Hudson, we're three and a half hours from, with the first pick, the Minnesota Twins select. Yeah. Kind of thought we might have a little bit more certainty at this point than we do. Where do you think we yeah. are? Um... I think the, the the twins have held things up a little bit. Usually teams, uh, well, I don't, I don't, usually no. is, is, usually is not a okay. word we can, even, we can even use in the draft anymore. But uh, you think that when we get this close, you have a pretty good idea of who's in that discussion. That's true. We do have, we know that it's down to four players. And it seems like right now, uh, Royce Lewis is the most likely to be the number one overall pick. Which if, if, if is we, a new one. I mean, that not that he's not been in this consideration, but... I don't think there's been one day, if you asked over the previous three months, that we'd have said that Royce Lewis was number one in the clubhouse to be the first pick. Is that fair? That is fair. Um, you know, and I think that what that tells you is, is that this draft process is is not a one day you're here and one day you're there. It's a you you take the whole picture and then at the end the board is the board and that's what the teams are going to do now. The Twins are also, you know, potentially going to get into some things with signability. Absolutely. Uh, and then they're going to try to make the most of their pool money. And and my guess is right now they're getting a sense of what it's going to take to sign other guys later on. Uh, that's the, that is the part of this that I think that gets lost all too often. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that comes from the fact this draft, we've got a story up at the at BaseballAmerica.com right now, but this draft is very different. If you're used to the NFL draft, if you're used to the NBA draft, those drafts are talent-based, need-based. We're not talking about need nearly as much here because these guys in some cases may be five, six, seven years away. But the other part about it is, is that the signability is so vital because what you take, what you spend on pick one or pick two or pick three or pick four may very well determine what you spend on your second pick, your third pick, your fourth pick, all Absolutely. the way down the line. And, and it's, it's this massive trickle-down effect. Um, 
that it's going to affect every single one of your own picks, and then it's also going to affect where everybody else is going. You know, you talk to uh, you talk to agents today or, or advisors, quote unquote, mm-hmm. uh, who are who are out there looking for deals for for their players in a lot of spots, uh, or trying to gauge the market of where where their players might fall in the draft. And then there's there's guys who, hey, we might have a deal somewhere five to ten. We might he might go there, and if he doesn't go there. We think we're going to be able to get his money later on, unless somebody pops him in between. So the spreading around of bonuses like that, as my phone starts to to go off yeah. with, with potentially another yeah. another call, um, the uh, the spreading around of bonuses affects everyone, and it affects the to, markets for for everyone as well. To to give an example, Bubba Thompson. We've got rumors that Bubba Thompson could go four, the Rays at four. We also would be shocked if Bubba Thompson went. 15, an example to me that I think is a good a good analog for that. Look at last year. Look where Blake Rutherford went. Now the high school outfitter again. Blake Rutherford ends up going, I believe, was 18th to the Yankees. But Blake Rutherford made more than the guys who were picked 17, 16, 15, all the way up to 12. Well, and the reality is, is that part of this is asking price is, you know, what you end up signing for is as important as talent in many ways. Absolutely. And, and what really... The thing that really applies about Rutherford, Rutherford and Jason Groom last year both having deals in place later on in the draft and then being cut off by mm-hmm. teams who didn't have deals in place and saying, no, the Yankees are like, yeah, well, you have, a deal, a you have a deal later? Well, we have the pick right now, so you're, you you can choose to, to go to UCLA if that's what you want to do, or you can sign for what we have, the, the money we have to give you. Which uh, still ended up being a top, I think, I believe it was 10, top 12 bonus. Yeah, and I'm sure Blake Rutherford's very, very well, happy yeah, in, in Charleston right now or wherever he's at. But the uh, the uncertainty of the draft is has really, you have it a little bit at one. I think that's starting to crystallize. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to be Royce Lewis at this point. The, after that, the San Diego Padres... <laughs> but who knows? To, to again, to give an example, just looking at last year. Last year, the Padres took a guy at the top of the draft who had not pitched. Cal Quantrill hadn't pitched in the game all year. Yeah. They then took a guy later in the first round, uh, Hudson Potts, who ended up making less money on their bonus than the next four guys they drafted after him because they, again, it's the combination of talent and signability. They are obviously one of the wild cards again. They're picking, or they pick a three. What they do can determine a lot of what goes on after that. Yeah, absolutely. They're a wild card. Uh, the Rays are a little bit of a wild card. There's been a lot of stuff on them uh, lately. I, I think that I've been able to, uh, you, you know, there have been some rumors out there that they've been in on uh, Bubba Thompson. I don't think that's going to happen. I, I definitely think that they like Bubba Thompson as a player, but I, I don't think that that's going to be their pick. And obviously it's going to depend on what happens at one, two, three with the Rays picking four. But you're looking at a draft where right now the situation that I see playing out is going to be Royce Lewis going one, two is going to be Hunter Green, three Mackenzie Gore. And then if that happens, I find it hard to believe that the Rays wouldn't take Brendan McKay there mm-hmm. uh, to, to go make a deal for an underslot player. With McKay, do you have a good idea of where the Rays like him as a pitcher or as a hitter, I know we've talked a lot about. I don't have a an exact sense of that, but I do know that they're they're pretty enthusiastic about him offensively. Mm. So. so if that happens, that's what's fascinating about that is is then the Braves were sitting there at five, and we've in our offices kind of talked about. It's not a clear delineation, but this is a draft that we feel like has a has a very clear top five. The four guys that you just mentioned, you know, if it goes that way, 
and then Kyle Wright being the other guy who's in that top tier. Mm -hmm. Do you think if that happens, that's, I, think, I don't think Kyle Wright goes five. That's the thing. You, you would think Kyle Wright fits at five, but he may not. Because, and I, I'm sure the Braves have very good evaluations mm -hmm. on, on Kyle Wright. I know they do. Mm -hmm. the, the situations you're starting to hear today unfolding are, hey, the, the Braves are looking in underslot deals, whether it's Keston Hira or Shane Boz, those those two appear to be in that discussion. And by the way, under slot at five could be that you make a lot more money than you would make if you went slot yeah. and, and the, where the, you could go. The other one to mention in that uh, scenario would be Austin Beck. Austin Beck, and, and the, the thing is, each of these guys may be under slot at five, but really under slot, we're not talking about, this these, is not these guys a, are all gonna get paid to some extent, whether they go five or six or later right. on in the draft anyway. So there is there is a financial floor for these guys that may even be higher than what they can get at five six. They may take a deal to get off the board and go five six mm -hmm. in, in certain because situations. Because that's, that's money in the hand. I mean, that, that's that's money right now. That's no uncertainty. You don't uh, you don't necessarily go to a, a team later may say, hey, we're going to take you here, and then another player may be, or, be there when they pick, and they may change their mind. Or the other example is is that you can say we've got a deal locked up at twelve. It's going to make us more money, and then team takes you at ten and says. You know, we don't have a deal with you, but we're going to take you anyway. Exactly. The the unpredictability after that, if you don't take the deal there, it incentivizes taking a deal. So there's a lot of stuff there. I think, uh, I mean, we, we've kicked off a pretty... Yeah. Pretty intense discussion. So, I don't know if there's if there's a way we want to so center it I'm or go, a different direction. We're, we're going to go through some questions. Yeah, we'll yeah, go through some questions. questions. So uh, we've already touched on Royce Lewis a little bit. I know we have this in his scouting report. You can definitely check that out on baseballamerica.com. But does Royce Lewis play center field at the MLB level? Is there any kind of consensus about where that is, that's at right now? Or is kind of the general idea to let him play his way off the position? Would most teams want to try him at shortstop before moving him yeah, to the outfield? Yeah, I think most teams – I'm – Pretty certain he'll go out as a shortstop mm -hmm. this summer, and, and teams are going to see where it's at and how it looks there, and and potentially if he does make that uh, that transition, uh, you know he'd have to play himself off of mm -hmm. it. I think there's there's no reason to to draft him and say we're not going to try him at shortstop because if you you try him at shortstop and you you get him in with some professional instruction, maybe he takes off at mm -hmm. that position, maybe he gets even better. So. If he's a shortstop, great. If not, he's a center fielder. And he's, he's shown plenty of ability in center field. He played that position a lot on the showcase circuit and, you know, made some incredible plays. He's, he's a plus-plus runner and it plays well in the outfield. And the thing with that is, is that, again, you look at past history, the number of big league outfielders who were high school shortstops, that is generally, again, especially for a guy who's already played it. This isn't a guy who's even having to learn it. This is a guy who's done it before. But... That is a, as transitions go, that is one of the easier transitions out there. That's not asking a guy to move, you know, from, you know, even from second to, from short to second even, I think is in some ways more difficult than an athlete like him playing center. That's, yeah, that's a, a good question. Cool. We've got a couple more about some of the college arms that have uh, maybe created a little bit more drama in this draft. Um, Eric Simmons asks, will Seth Romero be a first rounder after getting kicked off the team? I think that might hurt him. Uh, I think that's fair to say, but how far does that make him fall in this draft? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a slight scenario uh, there. The uh, there's There seems to be a floor in the mid-20s for him, and uh, he's been linked to the Nationals for, for quite a while, and um, that makes sense with, given uh, Romero's representation. Uh, you know, he's being advised by the Boris Corporation. Uh, 
you know, he's, he's been out there in Irvine working out at their facility. Um, you know, it seems like, it seems like with, with Seth Romero, from what I've been able to, to glean uh, from team sources so far, is that we're talking about an immature person rather than a, a bad person. A bad person. Yeah. So that there's, there's some things you're going to have to get past. Uh, he's going to have some growing up to do, but who doesn't when they're mm -hmm. 20, 21 years old? So the, there's less concern. Um, there's obviously concern when you have a, somebody you're going to be giving millions of dollars to has been kicked off his team. That's not a good thing. And, and not well, just was kicked off his team and was suspended twice before that. Suspended last year, suspended, brought back, and then... Yeah, the other thing that we have to remember is that these guys are human beings, and you know we can all have our own ideas about how we would act in a, in, if we were in the position of being a first-round pick, but then there's actually being in that situation and, and coming from, from roots that, that aren't necessarily glorified and not being used to being in the spotlight. So he, he's a young man. I, th I think he's still going to go in the first round. The, the Nationals do seem like a good fit. The, the thing with that, though, is you keep having these conversations with scouting directors, whether it's the early 20s and late teens, of, hey, what do you hear on Seth Romero? And it's, you know, we're doing our homework, we're digging. And, and if, if, for, if I, I'm able to gather that kind of information of, People saying he's he's it's more immaturity rather than character questions. They have a lot more info. Those scouting directors are getting that that information tenfold, so they're going to be able to make an informed decision. So I wouldn't rule him out anywhere really. He was trending towards the top ten in the country. You know, we actually when we did a, an updated list in, in middle the middle of March, we talked about jumping him above Alex Fajardo at that point. We ended up not doing it. We thought it was a little too aggressive at that time, and then things have unfolded. And, Change things, but, but he was the, he was the division one strikeout leader at the time that he was suspended. Yeah, and he's he's a lefty. He's he's a big, strong lefty with plus stuff. So and there's a lot to like there. And know? the other thing I think that is, especially if he falls further back in the draft, one of the advantages of him compared to these other guys is if you talked about who could move quickly, who has for one of the things you run in with college pitchers is sometimes they just don't have the innings to really give you much their first year. You have to kind of, if you don't shut them down, you have to keep them on a very, yeah. very limited uh, schedule, you know, innings and pitches and all that. Well, you don't have as much of that with Seth Romero because Seth Romero hasn't been throwing innings basically since March. Yeah, and he's, so, he's been throwing non-competitive right. bullpens. So, yeah. so what you are talking about is like a team for the Nationals who is in playoff contention if you said who is the most likely guy from this, I'd say there's two guys who are the most likely Brandon Finnegan of this class and Seth Romero and J.B. Bukaskis. And the thing about Bukaskis is you've got a lot more innings on that arm already this year than you do with Romero where you have to do a more of a cost-benefit analysis than you would with saying, hey, Seth, go out there and just blow gas for an inning at a time as a reliever. Yeah, and I think that it's uh, with Bukaskis, you know, sometimes it gets a little oversimplified because it's like, this guy's throwing 94-97 with a great slider, and he's got a pretty good changeup too. And that's that's an oversimplification for for describing how ready he is for the major league level. You're still going to have to work on his fastball deception and his timing and his mm -hmm. delivery. This is not a guy who who is going to be able to. You feel comfortable saying skip the minor leagues, go to the big leagues. Right. You're going to have to work on some things. He's going to have to make some adjustments to get to the big leagues, even as a reliever. So the it's it's not. I, I wouldn't anticipate anybody necessarily. It doesn't happen often. Yeah, I mean, this this class, I don't think there's anyone who's who's an obvious, sure, he's ready to roll. You could put him in the bullpen. 
you might be able to do that with Bukowski. So you might be able to do it with Romero. Those are the two guys who are the, Those the, the only candidates. The really. two, and then the thing is, Alex Fado is not that far from big league readiness. You know, he, he's pretty much pretty close to where his ceiling's at. His velocity's back up this weekend. Just on the broadcast, I was seeing 93, 96, mm-hmm. and goodness, I don't know if he's going to pitch this pitch today. He might pitch today. They just lost their uh, the second game of that that uh, super regional to Wake Forest. I don't know what the plan is. I don't know if he's going to come out of the bullpen or pitch or what. He threw four innings the other day, so two days ago. So that may affect his draft stock. Mm-hmm. What happens tonight in that game may affect his draft stock. And he might be. He literally could be on the mound as he's That's getting his name called. <laughs> I mean, the, next, the same goes for those two Wake Forest hitters who are also likely day one picks. Gavin Sheets and, and Stuart Fairchild both may be sitting in the dugout or they may be in the batter's box when they get drafted, mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy. It is crazy. All right. Yeah. We, we have another question, not to compare these two situations, but someone else asked about uh, Luke Heimlich with Oregon State. Obviously a much different situation. Uh, Clint Bolt asks, where does Oregon State pitcher Luke Heimlich go? Better yet, will anyone touch him? Hudson, I know a lot of teams have talked to you about this situation. I guess just to kind of open the conversation up about this one, obviously it's a lot more serious than yeah, it's, uh, Ramirez. Yeah, I think any conversation uh, about Luke Heimlich uh, should uh, should be centered on the victim of his crime. And uh, I don't think that, I think wh- while it is a complicated issue and there are a lot of ways to look at it and uh, you can talk about should should Heimlich have the opportunity to redeem himself? That that is a legitimate conversation, but at the same time, there's Luke Heimlich is not the victim in this situation, um, and as far as his draft stock, uh, most of the teams that I talked to told told me that he's no longer on their draft boards. Um, you you know there are there are plenty of resources for for families out there who are dealing with situations or dealing with children who have been uh, sexually abused. So I, I would encourage people to, to go online and uh, look up Stop It Now. That's a tremendous organization that, that helps, uh, that has resources for having discussions about those kinds of issues. Um, but really, I don't, I don't have too much more to say on, on Luke, Luke Heimlich. I've had a lot of people on my Twitter feed standing up for him. I think it's important to, to recognize what his crimes were and uh, move on from yep. that. Well said, Hudson. Uh, bringing it back to baseball, more baseball-centric uh, issues. Uh, Josh Ham asks, better chance to start long-term, uh, Alex Lang or Tanner Houck? Any strong takes? I've got a strong take, but JJ, do you have one? I'm going to say better chance to start Lang, better chance hmm. to – but I do think that Houck – if you give me the choice of which one I want, I want Houck. Yeah, I mean, I think – I would go Houck as a starter. I um, you you don't have the pure stuff that you have with Lang because you do have with with Lang you have a better breaking ball. Mm-hmm. Um, Lang one of the better breaking balls in the class, more of a sharp twelve six curveball um, with power and, and velocity. Um, whereas how he's been described as a one and a half pitch guy, I think which, that's pretty fair. With occasionally that slider being an average pitch for him, his velocity ticked up a little bit as the year progressed. But for me, what makes him a starter is is the fastball. That he has is has tremendous sync. He's got a great body. He's held up for for three years now. You know, I think that deception is sometimes an undervalued quality when we talk about starters. And this guy has very very good deception and fastball life. So that to me that makes him him more likely to start than than Lang, who's who has 
okay, but not great command. All right. We saw plenty of questions queued up. I didn't know if there's anything we haven't talked about that you guys wanted to touch on. I, I like this Mark Aloha code because yeah. it's, it's a question that goes into Evan White. Because we yeah. love Evan oh, White. We love Evan White. We love Evan White. And it says, do you, think Evan, do you like Evan White as an outfielder? To which I say, I like him too much as a first baseman. I, I really do. Like, it is something where he is so good at first base. I want, I want an 80 defender at first base to stay at first base, even if he has the athleticism to legitimately, he's a legitimate option in the outfield. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, to me, it, it reminds me of uh, a little bit of, of Jake Bowers, we were talking about. Jake Bowers being a little different, left handed hitter and guy who was drafted mm -hmm. out of high school. But um, a great but, first baseman defensively. Not as good not as, as Evan but, but a good one who, who has a chance to play a little bit of outfield and impact the game that way. And that, that versatility itself gives you a lot more flexibility. If, if, if you're blocked at first base. If you're base. platooning in a, in a certain way, or if you want to get, say someday you want to get a, a, an extra left-handed bat in the lineup, so you, maybe you put white in left field. So you have that defensive versatility, which is super valuable to a major league manager. Um, but what's interesting about that discussion is the the value of of a 70 grade or, or even a better maybe an 80 grade defender at first base uh you know asking some scouting directors how does that translate for you and uh, a lot of people talk about well it means we can put a wild armed guy at shortstop or a wild armed guy at third base so we can have poorer defense on the left side of our infield so he's impacting the game that way and then from a defensive run safe perspective you know, it's going to have tremendous value that way. And so, and even yeah. with the shifting we've seen teams do at the major league level, I mean, the Cubs are doing some interesting things with Anthony Rizzo. I guess that helps you maybe be more versatile in the, the shifts that you want to do. Yeah, like that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the point is that he's, he's an athlete. Mm -hmm. um, now, the, the questions about Evan White, I think, are more related to his power, power. production, uh, which, I, which I personally believe is coming. And I think that he has a lot of good indicators for future power. How about his profile as a right-handed hitter and a left-handed thrower? That's it's something you don't see very often, and I know some teams have questions about that. Is that a legitimate concern? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a fair point to, to bring it up. He's a backwards guy. He's, mm -hmm. you know, Ricky Henderson was a back, backwards guy. Uh, the best. He is the best backwards guy. You know, I mean, and this is a conversation like I was at the field one day and I was out at the Boris Classic uh, in April, and somebody was talking, we're talking about Evan White at the field and uh, somebody's like, who are the backwards guys that you can think of? And one scout's like, oh, there's, uh, there's this fast guy a couple decades ago. And I'm like, who, I can't think of anyone. I, I couldn't do it at the field, I was so embarrassed. But yeah, Ricky Henderson's the, the one most famous one. Um, a lot, not a lot come to mind, but that's a hard like i don't think that precludes you from uh being a backwards guy like if you have tools and you hit you're you're fine even if you are a backwards guy jeff allen asks uh we're hearing the twins are taking signability into account do you think that means they'll have a pre-draft deal with one and have someone else lined up for 35 and 37 to follow them yes i mean from the standpoint of just that doesn't mean they're going to get a guy at 35 or 37 but the point of all of this the reason that this goes down to the wire is, I mean, really, I will say the Astros, in the first year of this slot system, the Astros went Correa at one, who was not the consensus one, and then that allowed them to get Lance McCullers and Rio Ruiz later on to pay them well above their slots. They've, other teams have done this as well. The reason that if you're the twins that you take this down the wire, the signability is a part of this, is, is that you are doing signability 
you are trying to make sure that you have this first pick lined up, that you know what your number is there, and they're gonna, whoever goes is gonna take less, almost assuredly, than what the full number one slot is, because no player has gotten that much money in this system since it started in 2012. And so, but when you do that, you have plans for how you're going to use that extra money that you socked away. You're not just saying, well, hopefully we'll get someone at 35. You, are, yeah. you, have, team, you have players in mind that if they're there at 35, who are gonna be, you know, it may not be 35 and 37, maybe 35 or 37, whatever, but you're gonna have guys in mind who are gonna get more than that slot allotment. Not to look at what the Braves did last year, look what the Padres did. This is how the draft works. The the best example of that last year was was probably the Reds, right? The Reds, mm -hmm. the Reds, and not not that Nick Senzel is, is like a way under slot guy, but Nick Senzel, repped by the Boris Corp, who represents players. Who, I'm not going to say exactly who he represents, mm -hmm. but, but to protect them from eligibility questions, but he represents several players at the top of, of this year's draft class. Mm -hmm. Rep to Nick Senzel last year, the Reds still ended up with Nick Senzel and Taylor Trammell. Who got first round money. Who got, for, was it $3.5 yeah. million dollars in the second round? So there's, and, and then, oh, by the way, they ended up signing TJ Friedel after the mm -hmm. draft for 700 They had extra money left. Because they had all that extra money. So uh, you can even take, you know, it, it factors in significantly the, the players you're going to take later. You know, you want, you want to have a good idea of what it's going to take to sign them while you're having these discussions early in the draft, sure. But you're also going to have uh, – you also – the opportunity costs leave such a talented player on the board. If there is, if there is a Steven Strasburg, if there is a Bryce Harper – That's when you will see. You, you, that's when you say, no, the talent is too good. The players aren't, are, are too, like, too different at the top. So let me ask you this, because I do think that there is some perception out there. The question with that becomes then why is Hunter Green not that guy? Because if there was going to be a guy since then who at least you, I, and I would, my answer for that would start with he's a high school right hander. That is, a high school right hander is not going to be that guy. Uh, a high school hitter absolutely could be, although in Strasburg and even Harper's case, Harper was the age of a high school player, but he had a year, had a year in a junior college league where yeah. he had destroyed the league. So, I mean, you, yeah. you have. To do that, it's going to have to be a guy generally who is a college guy who's had a massive track record. So what would so the thing is, what would a high school right-hander have to be in order to fit that profile, right? It, it, is it possible? I would say I would say I would say so, no so, because the only so thing what, you could, so hypothetically, what if you have what if you have an eighty fastball, an eighty breaking ball, and eighty command, and nobody has ever hit you? What if you've got what if you threw ten no hitters in the spring? Well, let me ask you, Hunter Green. The only things that you would say that he lacks from that, besides the fact that people did hit him, he didn't have a no hitter every time out, and he shut down early. Couple, yeah. you know, but the breaking ball is the, the. I mean, when you talk about the fastball, that, that's that's the you, thing. You have the fastball. You have the ease with which it comes out of the hand, in a way that Riley Pint did not have last year. Who throws? Riley Pint threw as hard as Hunter Green throws this year. Hunter Green does it much easier. Mm -hmm. But again, you're, you are talking about if you said Hunter Green and then you added Tom Gordon to, give a, to make myself really look old, but Tom <laughs> Gordon's curveball to that, because I always think of Tom Gordon's curveball as kind of a gold standard. And Lord yes, Charles, yeah. Yeah. And yes, he has now kids who you know, are big leaguers, so I'm really old. But, um, but if you added that kind of an 80 curveball to it, I still don't think that that's the guy who gets you know, every bit of the number one slot money. I think it has to be, 
If, you, if that guy went to college and did it for three years of college, I would say then maybe yes. Strasburg to me. That's interesting. Strasburg was the guy who could do that because you'd seen him do it. He'd done it in the Olympics. He'd done it for three years of, really, especially two years of college where he was absolutely dominant. He had as good a stuff. And then Bryce Harper, same way. See, the thing that's, that, that makes it a weird discussion for, for me is like, we say, like, oh, no high school right handers ever on 1 1. Then we get to 1 2, and it's like, oh, fine. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, absolutely. We'll take them. So, like, what, what's all that different from 1 1 and 1 2? Is this just more of baseball being an industry that's really focused on precedent? It seems like a lot of things that happens in baseball, you have to have a precedent for it. Teams get really afraid to do anything. I do think it comes, I think, but I think the other part of it is, is that we also do see that the track record. When you talk about a high school pitcher, uh, the best guys you can think of, the best examples of success stories, uh, there's just not that, there's not the guy who's ever gone two, who you look at it and say, that guy went two? Why was that guy not one? The guys that you think of, like as high school right-handers who've gone two, there have been guys who've had good careers, yeah. but there's no one who's done that. Like the guys, when you talk about Josh Beckett, Josh Beckett, was in some ways the ideal of what a high school right-hander should look like. Yeah. And Josh Beckett had a good career. He was a key part of World Series championship teams. Those were all very valuable. But Josh Beckett did not, in hindsight, make it where you say that was the dumbest decision anyone's ever. That's not taking, to use a bad, you know, to use a different sport analogy, that's not leaving Michael Jordan on the, on the board to, to pick three. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you the, the first six picks uh, of the 2002 draft. Mm -hmm. Number one is, is a college right-hander named Brian Billington. Uh, and then number two, high school shortstop named Melvin Upton. Speaking no, of short... Not, speaking not Melvin of, Upton at the time. BJ, yes, BJ at the time, uh, boss man junior. But speaking of shortstops <laughs> who eventually had to move off the position because the air is at AAA and they, they never got better. But there's, there's a couple more names that mm -hmm. you're going to hear before you hear the money name. Mm -hmm. Number three is Chris Kruler. Mm -hmm. Didn't play in the big leagues. Number four, Adam Lowen, mm -hmm. odd situation, made it to the big leagues. Number five, Clint Everts, mm -hmm. high school right-hander. And then number six, Zach Granke. So Zach Granke is the success story, and we have, of, of the, the three high school pitchers that went in the top six in that year, right, he's, he's the, the one, he's, so, I mean, I don't know if one out of three is even a fair way, I don't even know if that's, if you have a 33% chance uh, of making it. In, in a given year. And the thing about it is, is with Grunke, I mean, he is an absolute success story. But as you, that was a guy who was not heads and shoulders above his draft class coming out. Like when we think of the guys, again, that, that is the, the, the tough thing about it is, is that interesting question we appreciate it, is that it does come back to high school right-hander. It's just very hard to be seen as the heads and shoulders above the draft class of the high school right-hander. Yeah, um, but I, I, I agree with you that on the, the point about having to go to college and do it for three years. That, I think, can put you over the top. Um, also, we have a question asking, can you see a situation where Paven Smith or Adam Hazley falls out of the top ten? I think it's possible. It's very, you know, again, the scenario is more likely to you. What's that? Because I feel like Hazley is a guy who originally started behind Paven, maybe a shot up ahead of him. So which would you say is more likely to fall out of the top ten? If uh, probably Paige and Smith yeah. is more likely, but I don't, um, you know, John Manuel and I have been talking back and forth on the mocks, and uh, in I guess two mocks ago, not sure where he put Paige and Smith, but he had he had Paige and Smith sliding a little bit. 
I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I could see it. it. It's one of those things where you hear teams interested in certain players at 12 or 13 or 14, um, and then ultimately when you sit down and do a mock, you have to give somebody a player, and there wasn't a spot for, for Paven Smith when, when John did his mock, and I respect that. The I would I would have put him in mine. If I had done a mock, I would have put him in mine. Um, I probably would have put him you know, somewhere in that. If I had to make another one right now, I'd probably go him to Diamondbacks, Phillies, depending on how the board plays out. But we've already talked about some of these situations in front, right? It could go so, crazy. So if, if, say we get to the Braves, if say we go Royce Lewis one, we go Hunter Green two to the Reds, Mackenzie Gore to the Padres three, Brendan McKay to the Rays at four, and then we see maybe Austin back at five. Mm -hmm. That throws a wrinkle into this whole thing, because then where does Kyle Wright go? Mm -hmm. Does Kyle Wright go six? Does Royce Lewis go six? Does Keston Hira go six? Keston Hira has been discussed a lot mm -hmm. in that range. And then if, if at seven, we've got Royce Lewis and Kyle Wright available, then I don't I don't think you go with Paven Smith or Adam Hazley if either one of those. Yeah. Is you're you're, you're doing backflips and celebrations. Yeah, and then exactly. if you have one of those available at eight, you probably take that one at eight and then nine they've been linked high school uh high school outfielders this whole time maybe they go uh, whether it's jordan adele or you you know there's there's so many scenarios i think that uh ultimately both of those those two will be top 15 picks mm -hmm. hazley and Paven smith i think that uh depending on how the board plays out i think that there's a scenario uh, for either of them at 11 or 12 in the draft with the White Sox and the Pirates. Two more questions I want to get to real quick. Um, Joseph Sheehan asked a question. I'm not picking my funny you all. I'm literally just saying, you know, the baseballamerica.com, we have a story up about the differences between the draft, between NFL, NBA, all that. You ask, is there a possible trade for the Padres to get Hunter Green? That's not allowed. So that's, you know, no. No, if Hunter Green is going to be a Padre, he's got to be on the board at number three. Mm -hmm. Um, but a couple guys have asked, and it kind of seems to come back to Prado to the Yankees or 16, but really what the question they're asking is, so we'll put it this way, Hudson, who do you think is in the mix? Obviously, it does depend on who's there at 16, but who do you think's in the mix for the Yankees? I think Prado is, is very much so in the mix. Um, Talk about a little bit, what would, what would the Yankees be getting with Nick Prado at, at, at 16? Hitter, competitor. I mean, competitor is probably the first word you use on Nick Prado. The, uh, the, this guy's a left-handed hitter, uh, a storied amateur career dating back to the Little League World Series, hit, hitting the walk-off hit in 2011 to give California uh, the Little League World Series championship, uh, being an ace for the 18 and under national team as a left-handed pitcher. He's been uh, talked about. I love him. At, I yeah, love him as. About, you saw him maybe one of his better starts at the NHSI, JJ. I know I was at another field watching this start, but I just see JJ in our. In our I think it was 28 of 29 or 28 of 30 strikes at one point. It was he insane. Showed. He throws a ton of strikes mm -hmm. and, he, and he comes right at you. And it's 86 to 90. I mean, it wasn't like more 86 to 88, but you'll see a 90. It's not like and it's he, terrible stuff. He cares. Mm -hmm. He actually cares. And I'm. It's unfortunate that I have to that caring puts you ahead of other people at this this stage of, of baseball. Caring is an attribute that should just be everyone should care about the game and about their team. But Nick Prado, Nick Prado has a better strike zone understanding than most umpires do. And when Nick Prado gets a strike looking, he looks back like, "What is wrong with you?" But I mean, and, but he also what he does is he crowds the plate really like pretty aggressively he's got his toes pretty close to the to the plate there and so he does get a lot of those 
those pitches that are actually close to his body but are actually off, side, off the out, outer half of the plate. He takes those a lot and, and gets himself into to negative counts a lot. At least that this spring, that's been something that's happened to him, and I think that's has dragged his results down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he did struggle at some of the bigger events. He struggled at, at, at the NHSI offensively and then again at the Boris Classic. But scouts have seen this guy for so long get the job done. Uh, he's he's shown advanced power, uh, improved power, I should say, in the fall and in the the uh, this spring raw power, you know, hitting tanks out to center field at UCLA during the Boris Classic. So the raw power is is there for him to to develop, gain power, and ball comes off his bat with authority. So you're getting power bat, middle of the lineup type guy. Uh, Brandon Rose asks, how high of a ceiling does Austin Beck have, and do you see him going top ten? So, as Michael Jordan would say, the ceiling is the roof. Ceiling is the roof. As we get a jump. Oh, you, you don't get that very often. You don't have the sneeze button. <laughs> the, uh, the ceiling is the roof for Austin Beck, is what I'm going to say. But now, what is the... Explain also, though, I would say if you have top ten, Austin Beck is going to rank as one of the riskier guys taking the top ten, largely because we keep talking about track record with these guys. Nick Prado's track record is... Huge. Massive. I mean, it's about as long a track record as an 18-year-old can have. I've honestly seen Nick Prado more than my mother this year. Yeah, like that, yeah I see that guy and, all the time. And, you know, Nick Prado's been a prominent dude for years. Austin Beck, he, he's, he's, you know, he's not far away, but when you say how much have scouts seen him hit with wood, it's, it's a much smaller... Yeah, I think you have to you have to be specific with um, with the scouts you're talking about because yeah. uh, the, the scouts with their boots on the ground in the Carolinas and um, you know Austin Beck is from Winston Salem area, um, only like an hour and a half from our office here in Durham. Uh, but as an underclassman, this guy was well known uh, in the amateur mm-hmm. scouting community here. Area scouts had seen plenty of him. He um, he played for the Dirtbags. Uh, travel team and, and that went in Jupiter. He played up as an underclassman there. Um, you know, had a laser beam line drive off of Andrew Schultz in Jupiter in, in fall of 2015. Uh, and as guy comes in throwing 93-95 and Beck hits a laser line drive right back at him. The questions you have with him, you didn't see him all summer, last summer, because he missed a little summer with a torn, UC, torn ACL. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the national guys, the scouts, the scouting directors, national cross-checkers, assistant GMs. The ones who have to make, who are going to end up making the call in the first rounder. Yeah, those guys don't have that, that kind of look. But there's uh, scouting, you know, making decisions in a scouting department is about trusting your sources. Sometimes that's going to, for some scouting directors, that's going to be their own eye. For others, that's going to be really trusting their staff. And if they've got a good relationship with their area scout, they can have a lot more conviction in that pick. But ultimately, no matter how you slice it, he's risky. One, because he doesn't have that summer showcase Mm -hmm. track record. Uh, But he's also right-handed hitting high school outfielder. Which is a demographic itself that's Yeah, we've talked about it with high school right-handed pitching. And it's very much, it's it's not nearly as uh, tenuous with the high school uh, outfielders, but you know, maybe you, Bubba Starling is, is probably a good example of, or I should say a bad example of, of where things can go if they go wrong. Nope. Yeah, yes. absolutely. we got a question that kind of ties into this just as far as Beck's track record and when he's seen. Uh, Billy McCoon 
asks, are players getting noticed more in the summer or in high school? And I guess this is kind of a process question. I would say yes is the answer, but and, yes. And I guess I guess if you're comparing the two in your high school season, and how do those looks vary? Obviously on the showcase circuit, guys are going against more elite arms, depending on the area that you're in, I guess. So, so what do you kind of depends, do with uh, the it difference? It depends there? on the team, actually. The, the, the team you talk to, mm -hmm. the, there are, uh, I would say, generally teams that are a little more analytically inclined do value a uh, summer showcase track record. And I shouldn't just say, we should be specific about summer track record and say it's not just showcases, it's performance in tournaments. Mm -hmm. It's performance, basically what we're talking about when we say quote unquote summer showcase is we're talking about hitting with wood bats where all the best players are in the same event. Mm -hmm. So what that means is a guy is gonna face guy, uh, pitchers who throw 91, 93, some, some guys who have good breaking balls, some guys who know how to pitch, they're gonna face good competition. And so you're gonna see how they perform there. And for some people, for some teams, that's extremely valuable and that plays a heavy role for them. For some teams, it's not as significant. Some teams see the summer as more figuring out who to scout in the spring. And if you don't play well in the summer, they're not gonna scout you as heavily or as early in spring. Now things can change, we're Bubba, talking about children. But, but, but yeah. Bubba Thompson being example, like we have the, the nugget that was in John's uh, mock draft from this morning where he says, or it may have been from you or from him, that basically talked to us guys like, I think Bubba Thompson's hit grade has gone up. You know, projection has gone up two grades. In the last six months. In the last six months. Guys change, you know, but at the same time, there is a lot of what you're getting. <laughs> Hunter Green was Hunter Green. You saw it last summer. Well, that, I mean, he became super hunter green right. this spring. I mean, he, his stuff was, was, his fastball was better. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think another interesting uh, point to make with this is that with the summer tournaments, at a lot of these tournaments, you're starting to get track man information now. And while that isn't a, uh, a be all or end all, it's But it is valuable. It's well, it's subjective. It's, a, it's subjective. You don't, uh, you and I could sit here all day and argue about whether a guy's got a 45 hit mm -hmm. tool or a 50 hit tool. But you, we can't argue with uh, this here's, here's how often he, he hits a hundred mm -hmm. mile an hour exit velocity. You can mm -hmm. you can actually plug in, um, and this will get better over time. And if if I had the time or the resources, I'd probably do more on this subject. But you you can do uh, use those those trackman factors for uh, to create a batted ball on uh, batting average on balls in play. Mm -hmm. Uh, expectancy, right? So if a if a guy hits has an average exit velocity and an average launch launch angle of whatever, here's his what we what you would expect his batting average on balls in play to be. Um, and then uh, over time, you can also the more TrackMan uh, data you compile, you can see how that ages and do, and study it that way. Uh, so you there's can, a lot of there's yeah. a lot of stuff you can do with that. But the point is, it's objective, mm -hmm. and you get a ton of that information in the summer showcases, and you get it at workouts when they come to your big league stadium. The, the other thing I would say is, is to take that in a little bit different direction. Is is you also see teams that value summer college leagues more, especially Cape, mm -hmm. more than others. And others who look, there are teams very much like you described. There are teams that go out there and they use the summer to basically really kind of line up their follow list for the next spring. And there's other teams, San Francisco Giants are one that jump out, that will, what they'll kind of do a lot of times is, they'll see a guy that they really like in the Cape who has a poor spring the next year. You can almost kind of link that guy, that's probably gonna be a Giants kind of guy, because they really believe in what they see. Wood bat, key thing, wood bat against good competition. Although, as uh, I like how you've explained it before, competition at the Cape, you have to kind of delve in a little bit. Are they facing, the 
start of the summer tape where you've got a lot of guys on? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember being pretty frustrated because I went four straight games. I saw, like, I happened to see one team, but I saw a knuckle scraper throwing 79 to 82. I'm like, this is great. This is fun. He's competing. But this tells me nothing about what this hitter is. Because if I'm seeing, so basically at this point, I'm just watching defenders. Because I don't. Uh, he's not going to be facing a guy who in the big leagues who throws 79 to 82. Right. He's, you, you generally want to see how they make adjustments when they're getting somebody pitching from down under, but it doesn't tell you that much. I mean, and that, that's ultimately what we're looking for. We're looking for the best simulations of the major league game and what they're going to be asked to do every day when they're in the big leagues. And that's, that's why you see mid-major guys who are feasting on 86-mile-an-hour fastballs that, that doesn't mean you can perform all you want, but if you're not facing anybody that's legitimate, the performance doesn't tell you much about what the, these guys actually are. And then you know, that's where your scouting comes in. Okay, wait, is he doing it with a really fast, you know, good bat speed, or is it that he can just, there's all these kind is of- Is he staying back and hitting yeah. soft, soft dinks and dunks to the opposite field? Is he waiting and seeing it deep into the zone and then letting it rip and hit it 420 feet? Yeah, there's all these, then that's where the performance doesn't, you know, the performance matters a ton, but the context of the performance is what really matters. Well, I would say at this point, we've, I think, gone for close to an hour almost at this point, so we probably need to wrap this up. <laughs> we could go on literally all night. Yeah, we, we I, got plan some, I got some interesting texts that we'll talk about off, off the pod. Yeah. So uh, we do want to remind you, we will be back. We're planning to do another one of these uh, later tonight. When we get done with the second round, we're going to come back in here and we're going to knock out, we're going to give at least some sort of thought on, I guess we may not talk much about the Cardinals tonight because, uh, no. uh, but other than that, we'll uh, break down uh, each team's draft, at least in some form, probably a few less questions and more just analysis on that one. Also, that'll be a Facebook yeah, live. I mean, if you want to just make baseballamerica.com your homepage, that's probably yeah. a good idea right now. We're going to have a lot of, a lot of stuff up we're there. We have another mock. We're less than three hours away, but we have another mock coming. John and I have been talking about it. John is exhausted and may take a nap, so it may be a dual mock yeah. with him and I. You might have some, a couple voices in there, yeah. but there will be another mock before the draft happens at 7 p.m. tonight. But uh, but so we do ask you to stick around baseballamerica.com all night, all this week. I mean, there's literally, I mean, we've got over 1,200 players that we've got paying for this. We have scouting reports, I believe, right now, somewhere around 700. It's insane. Uh, baseballamerica.com, again, a great time to subscribe as well because, you know, the subscribers get the, the best of the content. You get all the scouting reports. Uh, it's in, again, it's insane. We do want to remind you and thank you again for tuning in. We remind you that the Baseball America podcast and the Facebook Live was brought to you by Baseballism. Baseballism is the official off-the-field brand of baseball, offering apparel for men, women, and kids. Looking for that perfect Father's Day gift or a gift for that recent graduate? Go to Baseballism.com, enter the code BA2017, and you'll get free shipping on your order. For Hudson Belinsky, for Carlos Colazzo, I'm JJ Cooper. We thank you for being here today again, and stick around at BaseballAmerica.com tonight and all week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.